Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Fago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, the Royal Air Force's Global Air Force's Climate Change Collaboration Initiative. But first, joining us is my good friend, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, who joins us almost every week to give us a look ahead. Uh, Byron, thanks very much for joining us, especially after joining us for that great uh, 9-11 focused conversation on Friday. Great to be here, Vago. Uh, thanks very much uh, again uh, for joining us. And you're uh, going to help us tackle some questions that we didn't get to because we were focused on how the world has changed and defense and aerospace changed uh, over the past 20 years. And I uh, commend to our audience to check out that uh, program uh, and also to check out our podcast yesterday uh, with our business uh, team uh, who talked about how the defense and aerospace industry has changed over the past 20 years. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. And I should point out that Huntington Ingalls Industries and General Electric Marine sponsored our recent coverage of the Navy League Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show. Byron, uh, start us off right as we were talking about 9-11 and the lessons learned on the Friday before uh, the 20th anniversary commemoration. Uh, the House Armed Services Committee put out its markup uh, report. Uh, and uh, what did you think was was interesting in this, right? Uh, our uh, panelist, our, our regular Washington Roundtable uh, panelist, uh, Dr. Dov Zakheim, has taken to task uh, Congress for investing too much on legacy systems and not uh, as much money being directed to, to future capabilities. I think there are some people in the administration who would share that. Talk to us about what you found so interesting in the Hask uh, markup report. Well, sure, Vago. And I think the important point about the report is it, it really detailed how uh, Hask recommends the $25 billion plus up to the administration's request, how that gets allocated cost programs and spending categories. And you know, we, we really didn't know that based on the amendment that got voted on, and, and it certainly wasn't in the chairman's mark, since uh, Chairman Smith had basically submitted a, a budget uh, plan, that a, a request, a recommendation that was in line broadly with the administration's top line. But not surprisingly, uh, about $21 billion of the $25 billion went to uh, procurement and RDT&E, uh, the break was about 15 billion of, of uh, incremental funding for procurement. And yes, as Dove pointed out, you know, most of that money, about 13.7, 13.8 billion, <clears throat> went almost exclusively to large mature weapons programs. So um, naval vessels, uh, uh, F-15s, F-18s, you know, and you could argue if the purpose of this mark was to better uh, deter China from doing something uh, against Taiwan or against other interests, uh, the US or the allies in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, you know, the, the simple fact is, is most of these deliverables will take place beyond this kind of window of vulnerability that I think a lot of people have talked about. Um, you may be sending some signals, but it, it smacked more of, hey, what kind of jobs can we create in, in our district as opposed to um, let, let's deal with <clears throat> deterring China in a, in a much shorter time frame than, than some of these program spend outs actually would, would imply. And again, you know, when you talk about buying F-15s or F-18s, 
I get the controversy over the F uh, F thirty five, but it, it is kind of interesting. You're still buying these what it what it affect or improve versions of really planes that were designed in the 1970s, 1980s. D- did you uh, find any compelling rationale aside from uh, the Veruca impulse of I want, I want, I want? I mean, ultimately, you can even look at what the U.S. Air Force is doing. And really, that, you know, obviously, it is it is a very capable jet. It's a medium bomber in the form of the F-15EX. Uh, in the case of the F-18, there is a rather robust debate about whether or not the Navy actually needs these jets, right? I mean, uh, you can argue that a better maintenance uh, structure within the Navy can generate that. You know, I mean, the U.S. Air Force doesn't have twice the size of the inventory to field primary available aircraft, right? right. Are, are you sold by any of the rationales that are included in this language for why we're investing so much money in legacy capabilities when there is sort of this obvious need poor resources into future capability? Well, that, that was the interesting kind of yin and the yang of this mark is they did pour some money into RDTD that you go, wow, there, there, there's some interesting changes in there, you know, money for, uh, you know, a couple hundred million for hypersonics. I didn't add all the line items. Uh, there's, uh, there's 200 million for biotechnology innovation, uh, over 200 million for artificial intelligence. Uh, there was 194 million for Guam's defense. Uh, so there, there are some some portions of the RDTD budget that might play more directly to uh, you know future military future military investment. Uh, the only the only one that I think you know you could argue uh, there's um, money for an LHA replacement. You know, you can justify that's that's necessary because the the fire that destroyed the USS Bonhomme Richard, uh, and, you know, where that vessel basically had to be scrapped. But again, you got the sense that the Navy and the Marines were really moving away from these large deck amphibs to a, a more distributed fleet. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, it, it's just it's it was a curious mark from that standpoint, uh, at least given the, a lot of the rhetoric that came up during hearings that passed, and frankly, the other uh, oversight committees held when uh, when the F twenty the fiscal year twenty twenty two budget was being uh, considered. Um, I mean, is there a sense? Let's talk about RDT&E, right? Research, development, test, and evaluation timelines here, because uh, you and I, just before we started, we're talking about a conversation I had with General McConville, uh, the Army Chief of Staff last year as part of our AUSA coverage. And, you know, one of the questions I've been, I've, I've been asking flag and general officers has been, what do they see as the window? That was before uh, Admiral uh, Phil Davidson, the former uh, Pacific commander, Indo-Pacific commander, had said that he sees sort of a six-year window uh, or so. Um, you know, the General McConville sort of saw a two-year window uh, at the time, right? I mean, we can develop, d- d- discuss the window, but if you're fielding capabilities in like 2030 or 45, isn't that a little OBE in the determinant? I mean, talk to us a little bit about some of these timelines. Well, and- that's just that, you know, I mean, you know, these ships, ships themselves, you're talking about, you know, delivery dates after 2028, 20, 2030. Uh, the aircraft obviously are on a shorter time scale. Uh, but then you kind of get into, okay, are those the right kind of aircraft you're going to need for a contingency where, you know, large bases in the Western Pacific could be under threat? I mean, it's just, it, 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 I would have expected more change to things like 
weapons, ammunition categories, uh, missiles, you know, under, under Air Force. I mean, they, they added, actually, you know, the Hass mark really didn't change some of those categories at all. And for all the rhetoric and discussion about space, um, you know, there was really very little done, uh, at least in, in space procurement. So it's just kind of a, it's a curious mark. Uh, again, you know, there are RDT&E parts that I think are, are very commendable, um, you know, but come on, buying, buying more P8s, more V22s, more, more CH47s and UH60Ms, uh, you know, is that really relevant to, to kind of what I think the spirit of the debate over defense is all about right now. Um, Paladin PIM was another one that kind of plus up. So it's just, it, it's a curious mark. It's a curious mark. Um, I, I, I do think, I mean, to play devil's advocate a little bit, right? I mean, you could look at the Paladin and say, okay, look, from a tube artillery standpoint, um, you know, being able to project fire as new uh, ammunition can let me reach out and touch folks. Uh, so certainly from a, in a European context, uh, right? I mean, artillery is still the king yeah. of battle, although, right, rocket artillery uh, and long range, you know, th this is one of the elements of the Army's panoply of uh, long range precision fires uh, that they're looking at. And on the flip side, right, it's all about getting people across large distances. So a CH-47 or a V-22 and some of these other capabilities are what can lift heavy things over long distances uh, rel relatively quickly, right? I mean, so in a Pacific scenario, you can certainly see, you know, whether it's from a ship to shore, uh, you'll you'll have to move stuff. Um, let's look at the history of continuing resolutions. Obviously, we're heading into another um, potential uh, continuing resolution um, season, as well as another federal shutdown season. Uh, before we get to what you're going to be tracking over the course of the week, how, how should we be thinking of CRs and shutdowns uh, given recent history? Well, sure. I mean, Michael, Michael addressed this during one of your shows last week. Uh, you know, I, I think it's a consensus expectation. There's going to be continued resolution or, or continue resolutions because <clears throat> you're just not going to get an appropriations done by September 30th. So, and then, and then there is a risk also of a federal shutdown over either, you know, all the kind of non-defense things that Washington is grappling with right now, including the debt ceiling. Uh, my personal views are that if you look at the history of federal shutdowns, you know, some have been partial, some have been full. Um, the longest, ironically, was under the Trump administration in from 2018 to 2019, it lasts around 35 days. It was a partial shutdown. I don't think these things really matter for defense. Um, I'm sure there'll be other people who would, like Bob Hale, will take issue with that statement because they certainly have an impact on the morale of, of the federal workforce um, and, and they're disruptive. But, you know, in the grand scheme of things for defense contractors, um, they're usually short enough that they take place with, within a window of a quarterly earnings report. So you never really see the financial damage that's done, done from these, the federal shutdowns. The continuing resolutions become a little bit more problematic, uh, particularly the longer they go. I mean, I, I think you know, the DOD is kind of acclimated to, you're just not gonna get a budget on October 1st. So the first couple of months, you know, people kind of hold back a bit and wait. And, and I think, you know, we're, we've, we've played that uh, record so many times that it, it's just kind of the new normal. Um, 
the average length, I think, of CRs, uh, there, there were two, one in 2017 and one in 2018, uh, that were in excess of, uh, well, the one in 2017 was the longest. It was over 200 days uh, before we finally got appropriations. Now, that's that's the scenario that I kind of worry about when you, you kind of put the department and, frankly, the rest of the federal government on suspended animation, with continuing resolutions, it, it it will really gum up the system when you see these uh, CRs run to like March, April, May. Um, it, it just has a cascading effect on, on what can get done. There, there will be and, and should be anomalies for some of the key priority programs, but that's usually a fairly narrow list. So I kind of, I know there's a lot of drama about federal shutdowns, but I worry more about about a lengthy continuing resolution scenario. You know, the hope would be that Congress gets appropriations done for FY22 by November, December, and, and then we can kind of move forward with a clean slate in 2022. But if that doesn't happen, uh, you know, that's when you start seeing bookings get impacted. Uh, you know, there, there are program implications too on new starts or rate increases that, that need to be factored as well. Uh, hope uh, springing uh, eternal uh, as, as, as the case is. Um, talk to us a little bit about the events you're paying attention to. Uh, the outgoing vice chairman and the joint chiefs of staff, John Hyten, a couple of other events. Uh, walk us through what our audience should be paying attention to this week. Sure. General Hyten speaks today at Brookings. Uh, New America <clears throat> is doing a future, their future security forum uh, that runs uh, September 13th and September 14th. Uh, there's actually a minor event. I believe it's being done with James on September 15th on long range strike. Um, and there, there are a couple of other, you know, there are House Foreign Affairs and Senate uh, Foreign Relations hearings on Afghanistan with Secretary of State Blinken. Um, you know, and, and you have the ongoing ZAPAD 2021 military exercises, uh, primarily involving Russia and Belarus, but there are a number of other countries who have sent small contingents to, to, to participate. So kind of interesting what, uh, what the Russians are going to be showing the world uh, with, with their, their military capabilities during this major annual exercise. And finally, we have DSEI taking place in London, uh, uh, the 14th through the 17th, and BAE Systems, which I think is a great idea uh, for, for the analyst investment community, is actually holding a virtual booth tour on September 15th at the show. I, I really wish more companies would do that at these trade shows. Uh, you know, the, there are some analysts who parachute into these things and kind of walk around the floor, bring, bring their, uh, their investors along. But um, it's just a good venue. It's, it's a, with all the streaming technology, it's just a good way to let people know kind of what are your products, how are you investing your money and kind of getting conversations away from, you know, how much stock you're going to buy with the free cash flow you've earned. Oh my God. What a, what a cynical observation. If, um, if, if shaped by experience, uh, Byron, um, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, and, uh, look forward to having you on again soon. Thanks very much. Thank you, Vago.
And a word from our sponsors, General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. And joining us now is Kevin Billings, a former Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Environment and Installations, who is now the CEO of the Legation Strategies Consultancy. He is also an honorary group captain in the Royal Air Force's 601 Squadron that serves as an interdisciplinary team of advisors for the Chief of the Air staff, Air Chief Marshal Sir Michael Wigston. Kevin has the distinction of heading up one of the RAF's top priorities, the Global Air Force's climate change collaboration. Kevin, uh, thanks very much. Congratulations on the amazing uh, assignment. Thank you, Vago. It, it really is an honor to uh, be able to participate like this with the, uh, the Royal Air Force. Uh, Sir Michael, uh, really is committed to making this happen. And uh, I'm just really pleased to be able to bring my experience to, to bear. I led a trilateral working group on energy with the Brits and the French back in 2007, eight and nine. And uh, this is sort of an extension of that. Um, uh, that was an absolutely critical time, the tar tripartite uh, agreement uh, among those uh, three air forces that found themselves consistently engaged in global uh, operations. You're in London now for DSEI. We're very sorry we're not there with you uh, to be doing this conversation um, in person. But talk to us a little bit about what uh, Sir Michael is trying to achieve, because this isn't sort of blue sky environmentalism at play. It's actually pragmatic, hard-nosed, uh, you know, paving the future of operations. Talk to us a little bit about what CAS is trying to achieve uh, and, and how he wants to collaborate with other Air Forces to try to do it. Well, Vago, you're absolutely right. Uh, first of all, the, the United Kingdom has made a commitment uh, as a government uh, to get to net zero carbon by 2050. And because the Royal Air Force is such a significant piece of the carbon production in the Defense Department uh, and in the UK, we've made a commitment to get to net zero by 2040. And that's a pretty ambitious, uh, um, pretty ambitious assignment to be going after. And um, there are a couple of reasons why it's important. First of all, the, the climate is changing rapidly. And as a species, we're gonna be faced with that for a long time. And from a defense point of view, it is climate change is really a, a threat multiplier and it can't be reinforced enough from the droughts that have can, you know, constrained water resources around the world that are leading to famines and great migrations to sea level rise, which um, is uh, really a threat to small island nations and is um, creating some stress in the littorals, creating a larger Arctic littorals, which can lead to um, one more opportunity for uh, conflict between uh, the great powers. And so uh, looking at this from an Air Force perspective, uh, we have a lot to contribute, and it also is an important part of our strategic commitment to maintaining peace and prosperity. And, and talk to us about some, uh, I mean, I, I, I think that that's a, that's a noble goal and ultimately right. 
uh, permafrost begins to melt, radar installations, we're seeing uh, some of that happen in Alaska and in the high north, we see some of the largest fires in the world happening and actually in Siberia in the in the Russian uh, high north, right? I mean, all these installations work as long as there's um, the, the ground remains frozen, just like when water levels are rising, it's a problem not just for Maldives, uh, but also uh, for uh, places like Norfolk Naval Base. And then if you uh, fast forward, uh, climate changing causes wildfires and droughts and everything that can then drive food insecurity, as you said, and a whole bunch of other challenges. What are so? What is your role in bringing everybody together? Right. So, what's the chief's approach to this? What's the template? What's he trying to build out? What are the deliverables he wants to bring folks on? Right. I mean, the United States Air Force uh, is the largest fuel consumer in the entire Defense Department. Right. That was your portfolio, um, and and actually makes it the world's largest single fuel consumer uh, at at the end of the day. Um, but there are a whole bunch of challenges that go with that. Right. I mean, the Biden administration will make it easier because they're pushing a climate agenda. But but talk to us about sort of the real world practical steps to get to that better collaborative future across countries that may not necessarily universally agree uh, on the nature of the challenge, for example. Well, Vago, I, uh, Sir Mike had, he announced it at the Air Power Conference in July, and he had sent a letter earlier uh, in June, the end of June before the conference to his fellow air chiefs suggesting that uh, we come together as air forces to look at how we are all dealing with this issue. We're, every air force is dealing with it in a little bit different way. And every air force has a, uh, a different take on what it means to the, that air force. But we have found that there's really no air force out there. And I've been speaking with um, air forces since June uh, across the world and, and everybody is has this as a challenge. And it was uh, Kaz's thought that we're actually all smarter together than we are individually. And if we can bring the air forces together to share best practices, to share lessons learned and to, to work on challenges together, we will each get to the point we need to be in our individual air forces uh, sooner than we will be if we just go after it uh, individually. Uh, there's not, we're not trying to tell anybody how to do anything uh, really, but just uh, be a, um, a place that uh, folks can share ideas. So we're going to be putting together both a virtual uh, collaboration space as well as uh, having working group meetings uh, on individual topics and everything from uh, issues of infrastructure and uh, power at bases to dealing with sea level rise to dealing with interoperability and how as we move to a synthetic fuel uh, as that comes along, how are our aircraft uh, registered and verified so they can fly on that fuel? And how can we make sure that the, if uh, we have folks from one nation landing at a base and we've got uh, a synthetic fuel component that they'll be able to uh, work collaboratively with that. So those are some of the challenges, but again, we're, we're looking to do this in a collaborative fashion. And again, it's about sharing best practices and 
lessons learned so we can all get to wherever we want to be uh, sooner than we would be individually. And that's the, that's the real key. And, and um, you know, I know the COP21 uh, uh, conference is coming up uh, in, in London. Boris Johnson, uh, the prime minister, is looking to host that. So obviously this uh, falls, falls into that as well. Walk us through uh, whatever uh, CAS's timeline is uh, for where you are on deliverables. Uh, you know, obviously we're still in a virtual time because there is uh, the pandemic. That's at great events like DSCI and AFA the week after are going to be uh, taking place in, in, in person. And I think so far the COP26 conference will be in person. Talk to us about the deliverables uh, schedule as we, as we look out over the coming months and years. The COP26 conference um is in the first week of November in Glasgow. And while the collaboration has no formal part of that, it was hoped that um, we, there may be a, um, the Air Forces may come together and sign an agreement, uh, basically saying that uh, we think this is an important issue and that we're gonna collaborate uh, together on that. But um, that's, that's not the key piece of it. The key piece is really the enduring collaboration enterprise that's being built. And we have a, um, we have a couple of things starting right now. I am reaching out uh, individually to the air forces and to the points of contact that the, the world's air, the air chiefs have uh, sent to me. And we're looking for the, the, the key working groups that people want to center upon. Uh, then we're, and we're gonna have a, um, a POCs uh, meeting about at the three-star level uh, in mid-October at King's College London uh, that will be hosted by uh, Andy Turner, Air Marshal uh, Andy Turner, who is the, um, the, the main person, you know, uh, doing this for the RAF in terms of actually delivering on the, uh, the operation and strategic pieces for the RAF. Uh, Air Marshal Turner will be leading that. And then we're hoping to begin having uh, in-person working groups uh, that will start hopefully by the end of the year. And we will, the plan is to report to the air chiefs at the air power conference next year in July and to be a presence at the Royal International Air Tattoo. And then again, six months from then, the end of the year, we're looking to have two meetings a year with the working groups where the working groups will uh, read out to the air chiefs what they've accomplished, what they're looking at and be able and publish it for everybody to see. It is, again, this is a, a collaborative effort. It is, uh, will be driven by the Air Forces. So as we, we pull these things together, we'll be looking at um, all sorts of things. One of the things I'd like to highlight though is uh, that Air Forces, large and small, all have, are, are dealing with this. The first Air Force that responded to Kaz's letter was the Sri Lankan Air Force. And when I met with um, defense attache and the air attache in Washington from Sri Lanka, they were, they were thrilled about this because one of the things they're doing to uh, 
deal with climate change is um, they're leading the reforestation of the jungles in Sri Lanka. And they're doing this by carpet bombing uh, large areas that have been deforested through disease and other, uh, not the man-made pieces of the puzzle, but there are big pieces of the force that have been uh, have been deforested and they're out of the range of people to go and actually do this. So they bring helicopters in uh, with uh, these balls of seed that are um, in elephant dung and they carpet bomb the, uh, the deforested area. And they've had tremendous success in the uh, reforesting with indigenous uh, plants and those areas, if you look at the before and after pictures, are uh, is absolutely remarkable. And this is a a, a practice that could be used uh, in the jungles of South America or anywhere where it's really hard to uh, for people to get there. So as we look at um, solutions, uh, it's going to come from all over the world. I mean, places like Sri Lanka, which I never would have thought of, would been a a leader in this, but uh, but really is. They're doing an amazing job. Kevin, thanks very much. Fairwinds following seas, break a leg on the effort, uh, and certainly looking forward to having you back on again uh, to give us updates as we go through the process. Thanks so very much. You got it. Thank you. Bye-bye. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.